Okay, we're ready to start. We're good. Hi, this is Everything Soon, your yet-to-determine-a-tagline podcast out of Montreal and Halifax. I'm Marie-France Boisvert, and 800 kilometers to the east of me is a woman who would like it known that she would die for Gritty the Philadelphia Flyers mascot, Megan Cox. Hi, Megan. Hi, Marie-France. Uh, yes, I love Gritty more than a human person probably should. He's a result of what happens when you Dr. Frankenstein yourself across between a surly Muppet who will fight you in a dark alley, <laughs> uh, Scott Hartnell, who did used to play for the Philadelphia Flyers, and the screams of horrified children the world over. He is a shining beacon of light in what feels like the absolute dumbest timeline. All that being said, hello to you, our listeners. <laughs> Hi, listeners. In uh, January 2014, Halifax Regional Council approved a study to look at the major redesign of the city's transit system. And then a redesign plan was adopted called the Moving Forward Together Plan. Today's topic is public transit. Let us move forward together. We're going to do a News About Us segment. Oh my God, I love it. My news, uh, I exercised some extreme restraint the other day in not vaulting over my cubicle wall. And I think uh, I deserve the highest of praise for it. So just to check here, when you say cubicle wall, you mean you're at work, right? You don't just have a cubicle wall in your house. <laughs> I, uh, no, I do not have a cubicle wall in my okay. house. So yes, I was, I was at my place of employment. So I was trying to be on my best behavior. Okay, um, continue. <laughs> So I'm kind of a political person. Bananas, right? Bananas. So anyway, I heard someone in my workspace say that they don't follow politics, which on its own gets my blood boiling because that's kind of a privileged white woman thing to say. Anyway, that sentence was uttered in the presence of an older male colleague of ours. Whether or not he's American, I don't really know, but he had begun talking about the recent midterm elections. And another colleague of mine who's next to my cubicle said, don't get him started. He's a Republican. So I've gotten to the point in my life where I just don't engage with anyone who's a Republican or a conservative if I can avoid it, basically because my frame of thinking is they're totally okay with supporting people in parties who are inherently racist and misogynistic. So I'm just sitting at my desk stewing quietly, or so I think. I guess I was breathing pretty heavily because I was trying not to engage. So I'm not opening my mouth at all because I don't want yelling or bees to come out. <laughs> so he was denying that Trump is a nationalist, that he's terrible, and that he actually thinks he's done some good things for America. Listeners, I am a tea kettle that needs to be taken off of the stove at this point. Oh, no. So one of my coworkers, this is the one who shares my cubicle wall, basically says, Megan, you're breathing pretty heavily over there, to which I just respond, I'm fine. I think she knew I was fuming. And after this first colleague of mine who said she didn't follow politics tried to engage old white man and ask him questions, he joked that he needed to go back to his safe space. <gasps> ha ha ha. And I had to basically get up and leave my own office so I didn't throw hands at this guy. And I just, I can't stand it when someone jokes about stuff like that. Like, it's not funny. You're not funny. You're an asshole and you suck. Long story short, I didn't, you know, fight this guy and I didn't lose my job. I'm still gainfully employed. But what old white men shouldn't be allowed to speak ever. That's my news. Uh, Marie France, what's yours? I hope it is less rage-filled than mine. Um, 
Yeah, for my news, I went for straight comedy, but I, I just, I just want to say that I kept giggling while you were telling the story, but that is not because I think it's funny. Like, <laughs> it's really like I think it's like a nervousness reaction. It's just like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So like, that's rough. Uh, yeah. It. It is because I like this is a person that, uh, well, up until recently, I respected because, you know, he's he's a very bright man. He's got a lot of really good ideas. But yeah. as soon as he started talking about politics, I was just like, oh, look at that. The respect meter is dropping exponentially. And now it's in the negatives. Good yeah. job. <laughs> yeah. People making jokes about safe spaces is just. Well, it just comes from a place of them, you know, not. Well, they've never had to experience it. So therefore, it's funny. And it's just like, you are just a jerk. Like, Yeah, yeah I'm trying to think if this transition is going to come off really weirdly or not. But like, look, <laughs> I'll just gonna go with it. And here we go. So, so Megan, my news is that I recently discovered that my significant other thinks that Paul Gross, actor, director, Canadian icon, Paul Gross, is not attractive. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> So, yeah, I know, right? Here's how I came to be aware of this. Alex, Alex is the name of my significant other. He tells me he's been watching a new show called Lost in Space. Now, Lost in Space is a remake of a remake. It's like a remake of a 60s science fiction show of the same name, which is itself based on the Swiss family Robinson. So Alex tells me about this and he starts explaining the premise, which includes the fact that it stars Molly Parker. Um, who's a Canadian actress and also Alex has a crush on her. And in the show, mm -hmm. Molly Parker's character has a husband. And the more Alex explains the husband character, the more I'm like confused that Molly Parker puts up with him. So I ask, you know, conversationally, so what's mm -hmm. up with this guy? Is he like really good looking? Alex makes this kind of face and he says something like, not really. Also, he has no idea who the actor playing him is. So I Google it. And now, Megan, it's Toby Stevens. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Toby Stevens is an English actor. Um, his mom is Maggie Smith. Toby Stevens has played a Bond villain famously, but more importantly and more recently, um, he's played bisexual icon Captain Flint from Black Sails. I mean, I feel like he's objectively hot. I can. I mean, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> so that's the actor Alex is describing as not really good looking. So I like. Like, just burst out laughing and Alex is like what and I'm trying to find a way to explain what my reaction is right now because I know he hasn't seen Black Sails so he's like that's not a context for him right so mm -hmm. so this is the best of thing I can come up with I say babe that's like if you told me that you thought Paul Gross isn't good looking and Alex without even thinking about it he's like what Paul Gross isn't good looking so then I did what like any normal fangirl would do which is I made him give me a list of male actors who he thinks are hot and then I posted the results on Twitter his first answer was Ewan McGregor that he did not even have to think about it and then he was like Douglas Henshaw and Craig Ferguson so I don't know what's happening in Scotland <laughs> but Alex is into it um then mm -hmm. I started feeding him names in the interest of science, here are the results. Idris Elba, yes. Paul Bettany, mm -hmm. absolutely not. Um, he, what? quote, looks like he's useless, end quote. <laughs> what? <laughs> Matthew Kazovitz, no. Hugh Grant, eh, better looking than Matthew Kazovitz, I guess, end quote. Oh uh, Bradley Cooper, ew. Uh, he, quote, looks like he would need help to buy groceries, end quote. <laughs> Um, Callum Keith Rennie, he looks cool, but he's not like, eh. and he also had the same answer for Mads Mikkelsen, which surprised me. Uh, Xavier Dolan, yes. 
Matthew Reese, strong yes, Hugh Dancy, emphatic yes, and quote, <laughs> that is an objective fact. I guess my news is that I've known my significant other for 20 years, but sometimes he still says stuff that surprises and amazes me. <laughs> okay, so for the record, I was curious as to what my partner, Brad, thought of Paul Gross. So, because I think Paul Gross is very attractive. I mean, he's pretty. <laughs> Yeah, he's just, and he's entered this like silver fox territory. So when I first asked him, he had no idea who Paul Gross was, <laughs> which I feel makes him a bad Canadian. <laughs> I showed Brad a picture of him from Alias Grace, and he commented that he had excellent hair, mm. which, you know, that's very accurate. So his answer to whether or not Paul Gross was attractive was, quote, sure, end quote. So that was news about me. And me. <laughs> now on to our question segment. At Everything Soon Podcast, we are fans of the non-passive relationship with media. So please send questions to at everything underscore soon on Twitter or over email to questions at everythingsoonpodcast.com. We like written down questions just as much as we like sound file questions. And we like topic specific questions just as much as we like randomness. And we also like to give examples. So uh, hey, Marie France, since today's episode is about public transit, do you have a favorite bus? line in Montreal? Yes, yes, I do. Thank you for asking. It's the 11 bus that goes over the mountain. That sounds super pretty. <laughs> oh, it is. Yes, I endorse it. Hey, Megan, what's a memory you associate with a bus stop? Okay, so the one that immediately comes to mind isn't a great memory, but it's also <laughs> not a terrible one. I was in my hometown of Lower Sackville, and the guy next to me just dropped to the ground and started doing push-ups. Like, <laughs> okay, this is happening. <laughs> Can I get context? Like, what time of year was this? It was, I don't recall wearing a coat. So okay. it's not like he was doing it in like two feet of snow, but also he was doing it. So <laughs> <laughs> still strange. <laughs> Marie France, since you asked me this the other day, but I failed to answer it on <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> Are there things that you enjoy in fiction, but that make you run the other way in real life? Oh, I love this question. Because I feel like in fandom, we have a clear idea of how like what you're into in fiction like, mm -hmm. is just not what you want in your life. No, absolutely not. Like, it might be, but it might not be. Anyway, so like my library is full of novels in which the main characters go through like terrible experiences. Also, when I'm writing, I enjoy making characters cry like a lot. But yeah, like I like reading about that, but I don't want to go through that personally. Anyway, but yeah, top three. I'm going to go with isolation or abusive behavior, you know, like in Jane Eyre. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And because I watched a movie adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac the other day, people who care about being witty more than they care about their own well-being. One last one. Hey, Megan, if you were a character in Harry Potter, what would your patroness be? Shit, is uh, it patroness or patroness? I, I thought know. it was Patronus. Patronus, that's the one. So if I had to pick one, I think I would have to say uh, Fox. Apparently, they're seen as quick, uh, intelligent, and strongly ambitious. And although they're known for their cunning nature, they are very charismatic and easy to love, which I like to think I'm at least some of those things. And I just also really like foxes. That being said, we have some actual questions from people who aren't <laughs> us. Question one is, what's your favorite thing the government has been doing so far and why? Uh, question two, uh, what has the government been doing that's causing you the most grief? 
also why. And question the third, what is the government doing that's causing more grief than they realize? Yeah, uh, so the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Uh, it's a pipeline that carries crude and refined oil from Alberta to British Columbia. It's been in use since the 50s, historically has belonged to private companies, but uh, it had to go through the federal government in order to be built because natural resources are a provincial capacity, except the energy is a federal capacity. Natural resources being a provincial capacity means that according to the separation of powers section in the Constitution Act, each province controls their own non-renewable resources. It's way more complicated than that, but I, I am not a historian or a constitutional lawyer or whatever. Anyway... <laughs> There was a whole thing about an expansion project for the pipeline announced in 2013. The pipeline goes from Alberta to BC. Alberta wanted it. BC did not. The municipalities, especially Burnaby and Abbotsford, were like, fuck you and the thousands of barrels of crude oil you have spilled here over the years. But more importantly, I think, the First Nations groups whose land would be affected have some pretty leg legitimate grievances, including the fact that the Constitution Act, that the federal government has a duty to consult with them on industry activities. But what they did in the case of the pipeline was basically lip service at best. The point is half the country was up in arms over the expansion project within a year of it being announced. The federal government didn't know what to do with itself. It took a while for things to get anywhere. Long enough that Kinder Morgan, the private corporation who proposed the expansion in the first place, decided not to go forward. Though I kind of want to add like also oil prices were less interesting by then. So anyone confused that there would be expansion projects for anything that's based on the continued reliance on fossil fuels, they might consider this a win at this point. They'd be like, oh great, it's not going forward. But no, the project still isn't dead because the fact is that Alberta produces oil. They want to export it, but they're kind of, in a sense, landlocked. I mean, they don't, you know, they have to go through somebody else to do it. And there's this mm -hmm. whole thing with the National Energy Board, which I don't really understand, but mainly, mainly, Justin Trudeau seems unable to decide who he's willing to piss off and who he isn't, <laughs> and he's going to piss off someone about this. That's why the pipeline is causing me grief. What about you? I was living in BC oh, man. when this nonsense started up in earnest. So it was on my radar pretty much daily, and it was general consensus, at least among the people that I spent my free time with, that Rachel Notley, the premier of Alberta, was and probably still is being a whiny fucking baby. Uh, but tell us how you really feel, Megan. <laughs> I would need another 30 minutes for that. So let's okay. just sorry, sorry, move sorry, on sorry. a little bit. Her response to BC not letting her pollute the water and run a pipeline through communities that didn't want it. Alberta wasn't going to import BC wine. I thought we'd end the question segment on what positive things are the government doing. Um, and yeah, I thought I'd mention, I went to the Pride Parade in Montreal last summer. Yes, there was a but, corgi, oh and I was God. very happy. He was the star of the Pride. <laughs> I love him. Um, <laughs> so Trudeau was there, and yeah, he was mm. just like not surrounded by a lot of scary looking security people. And somehow, honestly, like that almost felt conspicuous to me. So anyway, my sister, she works with politicians and also she was in the parade. She told me that Trudeau had insisted on having security detail that wasn't as visible. It was great. The fact that there aren't a lot of alarming looking security people means that everything feels 
anything but threatening and stressful. Like it was just like a very cheerful, lovely event. It makes it feel like the notion of government or of elected officials isn't associated with threatening or stressful images. I think that's awesome. Um, yeah. So to reiterate, please send us questions. Uh, our next episode will be about supply management. So you can ask us a question about that or a question about today's topic, or you can ask us something at random. We are at uh, everything underscore soon on Twitter, or you can send it over to us via email. And that is questions at everything soon podcast.com. Our main topic today is public transit. By public transit, we mean buses, uh, metros, uh, which are also known as subway or underground, uh, trams, ferries for the general public within a city. So for the purposes of this podcast, we won't be discussing airlines, coaches, or railways. In 2014, I published a paper about value judgments and mobility in public transit. Um, it was like an undergrad paper, no big publication, but I thought we could use an excerpt uh, to start us off. Yeah. So totally. in North America, the transportation mode share of the automobile is very high. One consequence of the North American population's high automobile dependency is high auto travel demand on roads. Concurrently, the ability to build Additional infrastructure is limited and in some cases impossible, and as a result, traffic congestion levels have increased significantly, particularly in the past decade. Traffic congestion negatively affects transportation efficiency and also creates negative environmental externalities. So one solution to the problem of traffic congestion is to increase the mode share of public transportation. But what can induce urban North American populations to trade their automobiles in favor of public transit? What are the qualities a public transit system must have for a significant portion of the population to frequent it? So if I translate that into non-academic paper speak, what I'm saying there <laughs> is that in North America, if you make like a pie chart of all the kinds of transportation people use, cars would be almost the entire pie. Ugh. So that means that there are a lot of people on the road. Therefore, the roads are very busy and a lot of places they're so busy that it's a problem. But simultaneously, there are a lot of places where building more roads to accommodate the demand is just not an option. Mm -hmm. So... Then there's traffic congestion. One solution to this would be to get some of the car users to use public transit. But how do you do that? Mm -hmm. When I was doing reading for that paper, one of the things I read was that Montreal and Toronto were cited as having very good service. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh, because I live in Montreal and all everybody here ever talks about is how, quote, bad the service is. Right. To say that a specific city has good transit service, you would have to have some metrics or benchmarks for public transit systems. Like you'd need to first have decided how transit systems can be measured and then mm -hmm. sat down and compared cities. And that was the point of my paper at the time. So like I didn't try to find a chart or something of every major North American city that would sum up where there was good service and then rank it all the way down to bad. But then when we were putting together this episode, I was like naively thinking, surely this data is out there for the general public somewhere. But it isn't. My first point about our main topic today is about the availability of data. So maybe one of the reasons why public discussion about public transit is difficult is that we don't know what we're talking about. Mm. So when, like in Halifax, a regional council announces a redesign of a transit system and some random, you know, taxpayer mm -hmm. reading the newspaper in the morning reads about the proposed redesign, like what frame of reference does she have? Mm -hmm. Like maybe 
This taxpayer is super interested and she'd like to have an informed opinion, but even if she feels like somewhere in her gut that maybe the proposed redesign is, you know, not that great, she doesn't have a whole lot to go on when city officials say that, for example, spending more of the city's budget would be unfeasible or irresponsible or whatever. Right. That said, there, I did find a few resources, but yeah, there's one that's, it's only, it's only, it's called mapnificent.net. You, you just punch in a time mm-hmm. and a city and it tells you, okay, if you're in this place in the city, you can get to all these places in 30 minutes. So you can fairly easily compare cities and you can have an idea of what they offer in terms of public transit. Um, mm-hmm. So that's like one metric. And then in the US, there's something called alltransit.cnt org, which is kind of what I was actually looking for, but couldn't find for anywhere in Canada. Oh. And it gives performance scores and it has numbers for, for example, the number of residents that have transit options within a half mile of where they live. Okay. And it has that for like, I tried different cities to find out if it really does have the entire US and it does seem to. So okay. anyway. Here's another thing I wanted to talk about. So over the past, like that kind of ties in. So over the past decade, I feel like I'm seeing more people in Montreal public transit for whom being there looks like a lifestyle choice. So obviously this is like anecdotal, but like 10 years ago, right? I would sometimes tell people that I don't have a driver's license. I still don't have a driver's license. And it very often felt a little bit like saying that I was like a 20 year, 29 year old virgin. <laughs> like people would stare yeah. at me a little bit like, like oh. they don't know how to react to that. They're like, should, should I, should I express compassion? Yeah. <laughs> should, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But now, now I'm 39. I still don't have a driver's license, but there are situations where when I say that, it almost seems to add to my coolness factor. <laughs> Like, like, like I'm real, you know? Yeah. And um, my point is, my point is that um, mobility studies, they're often about how much time or money would it take for you to take the bus instead of the car? And it's easy to see why. I mean, like amounts of money or amounts of time, they're easy to put on a chart. So it's easy to give results in like your economics paper or whatever. Mm-hmm. But what I would really like to read are studies where the survey questions are like, okay, on a scale of one to five... One being, I hope no one ever sees me here. And five being, I take selfies on the bus. <laughs> What's your perception of like the status value of public transit? Okay, yeah. Or like, or like a question like, over the length of your commute, how respected did you feel? <laughs> like, how did you feel about humanity? Mm-hmm. You know, um, <laughs> you know so, what? I, I would really prefer to see those sorts of studies, to be completely honest. And I just wanted to add that I you know, I haven't done a whole lot of traveling and a lot and my traveling's been limited to mostly North America, but uh, the city that has the best public transit that I've ever been to is Portland Aragon or oh yeah and it it was just fantastic like you get like you get off the plane at the airport and you walk out of the airport and there's a train and the train takes nice. you from the airport to downtown Portland and I I've never seen a more efficiently run transit system in like the handful of cities I've been in. And there's some cities I've been to where I haven't used public transit, like New York. Uh, actually, that's a lie. I didn't use the buses in New York. I used the subway, obviously. And uh, Seattle. I've been to Seattle a couple of times and I've never used transit there. But Portland, they just had it down pat. The only thing that stopped it from being super efficient was we were there in the middle of July. It was 40 degrees Celsius and the train tracks were melting. So we, Whoa. Uh, yeah, it was intense. Never go to Seattle. 
Seattle, or not Seattle, uh, Portland in the middle of July. I, I don't recommend it. But uh, so that was my tangent. Something that I've struggled with in my life as a transit user, and like you said, this is completely anecdotal. The transit in Halifax and elsewhere, I'm sure, it's still largely viewed as something that, quote, poor people, end quote, use. And uh, while Halifax Transit, and it used to be called Metro Transit, they seem to be trying to shift this assumption to the wayside, but there's still that mentality with a large sector of the general public. And um, there was this article I was reading on Vox, which was published shortly before we recorded this episode, called uh, The Bus Gets a Lot of Hate, which we'll link, obviously. And though it was more America-specific, it talks about how the bus is usually viewed as a last resort and not an agreeable option for getting around. And uh, we live in a society where your socioeconomic class is tied to your possession of a car. So people who use the bus, whether because they want to or out of necessity, are inherently seen as those people who take the bus, which still carries some negative connotations. One of the difficulties that Halifax has faced is that the Halifax Regional Municipality, or HRM, uh, is quite large in that it spans what used to be uh, the cities of Halifax, Dartmouth, Bedford, and Sackville, and the entirety of Halifax County. Uh, this includes rural areas that are still Whoa. on wells to give you an idea of how Whoa. much sprawl, yeah, needs to be taken into account. Uh, it was it was a bad call to amalgamate. Uh, so when any city planning is done here, those areas need to be considered as part of the city. Uh, so as a result, transit in these areas is often ineffective. There's a catch-22 in that people in these areas don't use transit because it's unreliable. But the transit won't get better unless ridership increases. But there's no incentive for people to use it, etc., etc. It just it, it's never ending. As we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there were some recent changes to Halifax Transit, and these changes sort of indicate that they're ultimately trying to move to a hub and spoke system, which is what a lot of major cities use, where basically you have uh, rural routes that connect you to other routes that will ultimately take you to your destination. So there's some transferring involved. It's still in the growing stages, though. This moving forward together plan, there's quite a few wrinkles that still need to be ironed out. For example, me personally, my bus to and from work is always late, which means I'm constantly late. On the flip side, they're also adding more bus lanes in some high traffic areas. Like they're slowly moving towards having the bus become a more viable option. Uh, how long it will take them to get there, who knows, because people in Halifax seem to be very resistant to change. Like you, I don't have my driver's license. I'm 33 years old mm. and I just, I like, I've always sort of lived close enough to the city center or close enough to it that using transit, it's a viable option. Uh, I don't know. I just, I honestly have no interest in owning a vehicle. I think their money sinks. And I just think that private car ownership was a mistake. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Oh my god, I love that statement. I know I've told you before. But yeah, yeah, it's just I, I don't know. I just I don't know what the other option would be. But just I don't think we as citizens should own cars. Uh, it's not a good idea. And uh, that being said, if it takes an hour to get somewhere on the bus that is only like 15 minutes away in a car, why would you use the bus unless you absolutely had to. So like I can kind of see why a lot of people are reluctant to, for lack of a better term, get on board with using public <laughs> transit. <laughs> 
Um, when I when I wrote that paper about public transit, I asked the question, what would it take to get more people to use public transit? And at the time, I was thinking about individual choices, as in when one person has a trip to make, what would make them choose the bus instead of the car? Mm-hmm. But lately, like the question I really want an answer to is what would it take to get more public transit infrastructure? Yes. Because I had some thoughts about a recent statement from the new Quebec Minister for Transport, François Bonnardel, who came into power October 18th. And Radio-Canada reported that after his swearing-in, he said, On veut être un gouvernement au service des citoyens et on doit penser aux automobilistes avant toute chose. Interestingly, Radio-Canada... Sorry, I just realized I've been saying Radio-Canada, but it's because I find it confusing to say, like, French CBC. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just like, I'm just saying it like, then everyone knows what I mean. Yeah, it Um, rolls off the tongue a little better than French CBC. Yeah. Um, anyway, Radio-Canada reported this not immediately after he said it. They reported it after the new provincial government declared that the transport ministry's name was changing. Oh. Previously, the full name was, it's a mouthful. Okay. Yeah, here goes. <laughs> right. Le ministère des Transports, de la mobilité durable et de l'électrification des transports du Québec. And Jesus. now it was just, I, I know, <laughs> it was being changed to just ministère des Transports. Excellent. Now. <laughs> Now, well, actually, that's what I'm getting to. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is that I feel like it perfectly encapsulates one issue that surrounds dialogue around public transit, where people are like opposing public transit and car users. Mm-hmm. So this guy, the new transport minister, he said right after being elected, well, after he's swearing in, that his government serves citizens and that as such, they must consider motorists before they think about anything else. Oh. Then the government changes the name of the transport ministry to remove the words urban mobility and electrification of transportation. It's all such a confusing move because it sounds like, and of course, I don't know what part of this is just like political foolishness and demagoguery and what, mm-hmm. and like what of it, what part of it is like actually signaling intentions, but it sounds like they're opposing motorists and everybody else. It sounds like they're saying like, okay, so they're automobile users and then there's like whatever the other people are, you know. <laughs> Everyone and so, else. you know, I'm I'm listening to the radio while this is being reported and like I'm brushing my teeth, you know, um, and I'm like, the hell? Like, what are you guys even talking about? Like public transit advocates, you're, they're not working against car users. They're just trying to free up the roads for you, man. Like mm-hmm. if all the newly elected Quebec government had done was change the name of the ministry, I'd be like, great. You know, just calling it transport ministry makes it sound like everything is like it's all transport. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> but like you pair that with the statement implying that if you're working for the people, you have a duty to prioritize motorists. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> no. Oh, like. Like when they're removing the words urban mobility, what they're actually saying is that urban mobility is not a priority for the government. Anyway, my point is here that funding public transit is not a move against car users. Mm -hmm. It's a move for public transit and public transit frees up roads and makes everybody's transit more efficient and also, my point is that there's some confusion when there's public discussion about public transit. Yeah, it it seems like no one ever really knows what they're talking about when they're talking about public transit. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of frustrating. Yeah, yeah that's public transit. Uh, yeah, that was our main topic, guys. And uh, for our final segment, we're going to do a, uh, a quick rundown of something called the geek social fallacies. The phrase geek social fallacies was coined by a gentleman called... Oh, God. I'm going to... I know. I don't know how to pronounce it either. I'm going to butcher his name. Michael... How about Michael something Wilson? Michael something Wilson. You know what? That's probably how it's pronounced, even though there's like no M in there whatsoever. Michael, 
I am so sorry. So Michael Something Wilson in a 2003 blog post was talking about uh, geek social fallacies. And the post describes five fallacies in social behaviors. Today, we thought we'd start with the first one. Uh, so geek social fallacy one is ostracizers are evil. Like everything on this list, this depends on friendship being a binary opposition. So like whether you're a friend or you're evil, uh, the first fallacy goes friends don't ostracize. Friends don't exclude other people. So if you ostracize, you're not a friend. And if you're not a friend, you're evil. I was super interested in these social fallacies because I feel like I've seen them in all kinds of social circles. Mm -hmm. So in the blog post, uh, Michael says that social fallacies are extremely difficult to dislodge because at their heart, they're based on pretty reasonable ideas, like that it's mean to ostracize someone, which like mm -hmm. I think, you know, most people would agree with. Yeah, totally. So if you try to dislodge the first social fallacy, that basically involves arguing in favor of ostracizing people. Uh, yikes. And that's just not a good look. No. <laughs> you know? And yeah, like the example that came to mind when I was thinking of this was a situation where like visibly one person in a group is making everyone uncomfortable mm -hmm. and what happens then is that people are so scared of excluding someone that it's preferable to disband the group even mm -hmm. if it's like not you know they don't do it on purpose but it's just like slowly everyone leaves because they just can't take it anymore and like yeah. they would prefer yeah to like destroy the group completely rather than exclude one person yeah. anyway michael wrote the blog post saying that he hoped that drawing attention to the fact that this is in a sense a fallacy mm -hmm. might be a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah. what are your thoughts? <laughs> it's funny in like a not so funny way because every single one of these fallacies that we're going to talk about is or was present in my life at one point or another. It was like you said, it was easier to just sort of disband the group. It got too awkward for anyone to bear. So like we sort of just all disbanded. Oh no, I thought it would be like a funny topic to end on, but it's a slight downer. Sorry, <laughs> um, <laughs> everyone. We'll be funnier next time. Be more upbeat um, somehow. We'll figure it yeah. out. Let's end on a quote. Today's quote is from a book called Transportation for Livable Cities, uh, written by Professor v uh, Vuken R. Vucic and published in 1999. Urban transportation in many ways reflects the general problems of advanced societies such as the dichotomy between individual and social interests, the external impact of a system's operation, and the relationship between market conditions and public service. In urban transportation, unrestricted individual behavior collides with socially optimal behavior. Well, Megan, thank you very much for recording this with me. Oh, well, thank you for recording it with me.